Francis Chan once said, my existence was not random, nor was it an accident. God knew who he was creating, and he designed me for a specific work. Of all the things that people struggle with internally, the things people wrestle with inside of themselves, you will often find at the root of a significant portion of those struggles, there lies an identity crisis. And so for the past two messages in Romans, for those of you who are here, you know we worked through chapter 8, talking about how our lives identify with Jesus when we are in Christ, because of course uh, a lot of those internal struggles have to do with identity. They affect how we see ourselves, things like our upbringing, right, how we were raised, uh, or our status, how we're viewed in this world, and of course uh, your past in general, or past experiences, all of these can have a powerful effect on how we define who we are, especially when we uh, either, uh, neither understand or have not been willing to accept who God says we are, right? And the real problem with that is you end up believing things about yourself that are not true, while refusing to believe what is true about yourself, which can and often does, by the way, have a profound effect on how you decide to live your life day to day and even what you end up achieving or not achieving in your life. Because when you spend your time and energy and focus constantly feeding a false identity, it becomes impossible to live the life of purpose you were created to live, okay? You cannot become all that God created you to be until you accept the person he created you to be. Right? You have to own who you are in Christ. And yet this world is full of people who believe in the truth about Jesus while simultaneously believing in a lie about themselves. They believe Jesus is who he said he was, but they don't believe they are who he said they are. <laughs> We believe his words about himself, but not about us, right? Maybe, again, it's because of hurt uh, we've experienced in our upbringing or because of the expectations of this world for us have taken a toll. Uh, or maybe it's past mistakes we've made to the point you can actually assume a false identity about yourself. You can believe lies about yourself, and consequently, you can miss out on the life that God has chosen you for, uh, which, by the way, is nothing new. In the first century Mediterranean world, the Jewish people generally regarded the Gentile people as unclean, and because of uh, the Jewish purity laws, they really had very little to do with the Gentiles when it came to their religious beliefs and practices. And at the same time, the Jews understood themselves to be God's chosen people. In fact, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as described in Exodus 19.6, by God himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, in reference to the Israelites. So as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles, you know, they might claim to be many things, but when it came to being God's people, when it came to being a priesthood, right, holy and set apart, when it came to being the chosen people of God, the Israelites had it on good authority that that status was reserved for the Jews alone, not the Gentiles. And of course, at the time, most everyone understood that, at least until a little more and halfway through the first century when the apostles like Peter and Paul began writing these letters to predominantly Gentile Christians saying things like, you, Gentile believer, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once 
You were not a people. But now, you're God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. That was written to Gentile believers as much or more than it was to Jewish believers. And so in that one statement, Peter redefines the very identity of a lot of people, which we're going to see as well in Paul's letter today to the Romans as we continue our sermon series working our way through this letter where the Gentile Christians have gone from being not a people to now being God's people, from being unclean to being clean, from being unacceptable to being accepted. They were now considered the chosen people of God alongside the Jewish believers. Listen, not because of their upbringing, certainly not, not because of any religious status they could claim or because of a history of being the chosen people of God. No, it was only by the grace of God alone through their faith in Christ alone that they were given a new identity, the people of God chosen by faith. Right, as we're going to see, particularly next week as we finish this two-part sermon we're beginning today. And so it wasn't because of anything they had done. They had no reason to boast about this new identity they now had in Christ because it was all his doing, not theirs. And even though we may not be able to put ourselves in their sandals culturally, we can certainly identify with those first century Gentile Christians spiritually because for all of us who are in Christ today, We've experienced the very same transformation, right? From being not a people to now being God's people. From being unclean to being made clean. From being unacceptable to being accepted. God's chosen people. Oswald Chambers once said, All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose he has given them. So if you're a Christian, I just wonder if you actually believe that. Do you believe that you're truly an extraordinary person living an extraordinary life when you're in Christ? And the reason I wonder about that is because if you do believe that, then listen, you're going to live like it. Your life will reflect that belief, and yet there are so many Christians who don't live that way. They don't see their lives as extraordinary. They especially don't see themselves as extraordinary, even though God's word couldn't be any clearer about that, okay? If you want to experience the full measure of what God has done in your life, you have to believe that he's done it. You have to accept that. In fact, belief is one of the most powerful motivating forces in the entire human experience. What you believe shapes the way that you live from day to day, right? If you didn't believe you were going to get a paycheck from your employer, well, then you probably wouldn't go to that job every day, would you? Right? But you do go to work every day because you believe you're going to get paid. When we get in our cars and drive places, at least for some of us, we believe that our car is going to get us where we need to go. Right? We get married because we love the person we're marrying and we believe they're going to love us back. We make purchases based on what we believe we need or what we believe will make us happy or what we believe will improve our lives. We make decisions every single day, little decisions and big decisions that shape our lives all based on what we believe. And of course, it's the same for our Christian faith. How we live as Christians is based not on what we say we believe, but on what we actually believe about Jesus Christ and his word and what that word says about us, right? And so regardless of what is coming out of our mouths, 
if our actions, the way we're living, do not line up with what we say we believe, then we don't actually believe what we say we do. I mean, the proof's in the pudding. And I'm not talking about perfection, by the way. I'm talking about conviction. At our core, what we truly believe determines the convictions that we live by, mistakes and all. Which means if you do actually believe that his word is true, then your life fundamentally won't look the same as those who do not believe that his word is true. It, it cannot look the same because the Bible defines the truth and reality and reason and purpose for our entire existence. And it happens to be extraordinary. It also happens to be antithetical, the opposite of what the, word, uh, the world says our truth and reality and reason and purpose is for existing, which means, listen, categorically, you cannot honestly believe that God's word is true and still live like the rest of the world who does not believe that it's true. You, you can't. Because your life reflects what you believe. When you truly believe in Jesus Christ and his word and what it says about you and your life, when you believe that, your life changes drastically because the base convictions, the foundational moorings that you live by fundamentally change, right? Listen, Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. Do you believe that? Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. Don't waste it by not believing what he said about you. Because what he says about you is the fact that no matter your upbringing, no matter your status in this world, and no matter what your past looks like, you've been chosen for something extraordinary, something bigger than your past, something greater than any status you could ever achieve on your own, and something far beyond your upbringing, as we'll see as we continue this story today. So let's turn there together. We'll pick it right back up where we left off last time at Romans chapter 9. We'll begin by reading the first five verses. So Romans 9, 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, again, he's writing here predominantly to Gentiles, Gentile Christians, and he opens up the chapter by expressing his great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his own people, the Jews, who were given from the days of old the adoption, Paul says, which is the status as God's chosen people, of course. He says the glory that's the presence of God in the tabernacle in the temple. The covenants, that's the means through which God promised to save them. The law at Mount Sinai, that's the word of God to live by. The worship, closeness uh, to God as outlined in the law. The promises, assurances of their salvation. The patriarchs, their examples to follow. And from their own race, the Christ, the Messiah, the, the one they've all been waiting for. And yet they still, with all of that, they still, by and large, rejected him. That's why Paul is experiencing great sorrow 
and unceasing anguish. Because listen, if these people, right, the ones who God gave every advantage to, the, the best upbringing, the highest status, and the a long history of blessing and favor, if these people are rejecting salvation in Christ, then who in the world could ever be saved? And so Paul, borrowing a sentiment from Moses in Exodus 32, 32, where Moses says to God concerning the Jews, but now if you forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Right? Paul's experiencing that same sorrow and anguish over the Israelites. And he says, for I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see, because his desire, and indeed Moses' desire more than anything was to see the people that God had chosen for himself to see them place their faith and trust once and for all in God. Not in their great upbringing or their favored status or their blessed history, but in Christ alone. But most of them didn't. And so if, if these most highly blessed and favored people are choosing to reject Christ with every advantage in the world given to them by God, Honestly, who could ever possibly be saved? I mean, who are the chosen people of God then? That's what Paul goes on to explain. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So uh, Paul continues, it's not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, even though some of the Jews have rejected Christ, God's promise to them has not failed. Because first of all, and you understand, there was never a promise that every Jewish person would be saved. It was never the case that all the physical children of Abraham were to truly be a part of the people of God. As Genesis 21, 12 shows us that the line of promise is traced through Isaac, first of all, not Ishmael, right? And so from the very beginning, there have been descendants of Abraham who were not among God's chosen people, meaning it was an error to assume, as most of the Jews did at the time, it was an error to assume that descent from Abraham gave them total security and a favored position before God. In fact, there was a common saying recorded in chapter 10, verse 1 of the ancient writings of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And it said, and I'm quoting, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. They believed that. And so clearly the Jews uh, believed that their upbringing, their common descent, at least in part, guaranteed their acceptance into the kingdom of God. But Paul, a Jew himself, knew better. And so he goes on to mention Jacob and Esau, who were further evidence that God did not promise that every person of Jewish descent would be saved, even though Jacob and Esau had the same father and mother, they were even twins, and yet God chose Jacob and not Esau. The point is, 
you are not chosen by your upbringing. Okay, God doesn't choose you based on who your family is or how they raised you. Again, Jacob and Esau had the same parents, the same upbringing, the same opportunities, the same family involvement, and yet that upbringing had no bearing on whether or not they were accepted or rejected by God because uh, one was and the other wasn't, right? Which is just as true of us today as it was of them then. The family, listen, the family you were raised in and however they raised you, that has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not you are chosen by God to be a part of the family of God. Okay, now listen, certainly your family can and often does play a profoundly important role in your understanding of who God is as you're being raised and your need for him in your life, absolutely. But that upbringing, Listen, as good or bad as your upbringing may have been, your upbringing can neither save you nor keep you from being saved. And yet there are countless people today, we see them day after day here, countless people who struggle with the acceptance of Christ and others in their own lives because of the rejection they still carry from their upbringing. The fact is, some of you are still carrying hurt and rejection from a relationship all the way back into your childhood that is affecting your relationship with Christ and others today. In 2019, out of the 1,429 people involved in just one mental health study, 68.2% of them, that's more than two-thirds, reported childhood trauma in their past before the age of 16. It's staggering, the sheer number of adults whose lives are still being adversely and often profoundly affected by things that happened to them as children. And so listen, because some of you need to hear this, if, if someone in your life, in your upbringing, if someone said or did something to you that is contrary to what God says about you, then listen to me. What they said or did to you was a lie. If a parent or anyone else told you or made you feel that you're worthless, right, that you're not worth the trouble, not worth being accepted like other people are, that was a lie. Because you're not who they say you are. You are who God says you are. By the way, that goes both ways. If a parent or anyone else taught you that you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family, that's not true either. Because you cannot be saved or kept from salvation by your upbringing. You are chosen and saved by God's grace through your faith alone. Right, which we're gonna talk about more in the second half of the sermon next week, which means anything that has ever been said or done to you that is contrary to what God says to you and about you, that is a lie. Accept it for what it is, and then move on with your life. Right, accept your identity in Christ and who he says you are. And so, what does God say about you, right? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm gonna tell you. And some of you have heard this before, but I'm gonna say it again because the fact is some of you need to hear it again. Listen, if you're in Christ, he says that you're a child of God, Galatians 3.26. He says, you're a friend of Jesus, John 15, 15. 
He says, you are a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, you're a temple where the Spirit of God lives, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He actually says, you're the crown of his creation, Ephesians 2, 10, completely forgiven and cleansed from all sin, 1 John 1, 9. He says, you're a citizen of heaven, Philippians 3, 20. He says, you're created in the likeness of God, Ephesians 4, 24. You're God's messenger to the world, Acts 1, 8. You are chosen by God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. He says, you're no longer a slave but an heir of God Galatians 4 7 he says you're set free in Christ Galatians 5 1 he says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise Ephesians 1 13 you're greatly loved by God Ephesians 2 4 and as we learned last week you're more than a conqueror through Christ Romans 8 37 and that's just to name a few now you tell me Whose report are you going to believe? The one who tried to hurt you or the one who loved you enough to die for you? Right? And you want to know what the truly crazy thing about this is? It's not what was said to you by that person in your upbringing that keeps you from fully realizing who you are in Christ. No, it's the fact that you believed it. And some of you still believe it today. Tullian Shavidian said, the gospel doesn't just free me from what people think of me, but also from what I think of me. Let that sink in. Let's keep reading, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So at the height of Pharaoh's reign in Exodus, he was arguably the most powerful man in the world. And yet at the same time, Moses, after killing an Egyptian in Exodus 2, was arguably the least powerful man in the world as he was not only a Hebrew, but he is now on the run from Pharaoh hiding out in the wilderness of Midian in relative obscurity. And yet between the two, which one does God choose to represent him in this world? Moses, of course. Well, that, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all, at least not from the, from the world's perspective. I mean, Pharaoh had all the power, right? Pharaoh had all the influence, all the clout. He had the army, the money, and the resources to do great and mighty things in this world, and indeed he did. Moses, well, Moses had no power. Moses had no influence, no clout. He had no army, no money, and no resources. In fact, as we learn in Exodus 4, Moses couldn't even speak very well. And on the surface, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that God would choose Moses to do great things for him, to represent him to the rest of the world. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. 
You see, Moses' political status, his social status, his financial status, his relational status, right? The people he had influence with, none of that had anything to do with God choosing him. And it has nothing to do with God choosing you either. You understand, you're not chosen by your status. No matter how good or how bad your status according to this world may be, you're not chosen by your status. You are chosen for a purpose. Because your identity in Christ is about far more than just a status. Even even your new status as a Christian, as wonderful as that is. Listen, when Peter told the Gentile believers about being chosen, you're a chosen race. Hey guys, you're a royal priesthood. Did you know you're a holy nation now, a people for his own possession? But he also told them what they were chosen for. He said that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, that sounds like we were actually chosen for a purpose, which is deeply important because it's one thing to say, hey, I belong to God. I've been chosen by him. I've been redeemed by him. And of course, all of that is true and it's very important. But for what purpose? I mean, have you ever stopped to ask God, why did you choose me? What have I been chosen for? Because look, I'm telling you, You've not been chosen simply for some kind of status. No, you've been chosen for a specific purpose. And if that's true, well, then you have a big decision to make. Will the rest of my natural life revolve around a status or purpose? Because those are two very different things. Living for status and nothing more, that'll cause you to live your life doing things for yourself most of the time and often feeling like a failure. Living for a purpose will cause you to give your life away doing things for others, which is, by the way, tremendously fulfilling. Right? That's the difference between status and purpose. We live in a culture full of people who are living for status of one variety or the other. And again, as Christians, our status as children of God couldn't be any more important than it is. But you haven't been chosen just to be chosen. You haven't been chosen simply to be able to call yourself a Christian. No, you've been chosen for a purpose something bigger than yourself. Your life has a purpose far beyond simply serving yourself or some status that is meaningful to this world. And I'm telling you, once you find out what that purpose is and you embrace it, you'll never be the same again. We're gonna talk about that next week. It's what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples when he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, John 15, 16. In other words, I've chosen you for a purpose, to spend the rest of your life doing things that abide, things that outlive you, things that remain long after you've left this earth, which again, we're gonna talk about soon, because your worldly status, it's not gonna last once you're gone. But listen, the purpose that you live for and the fruit that you produce in this world, that'll remain long after you're gone. It's called living a life of purpose, which is, uh, by the way, it's a far riskier way uh, to live your life than simply saying, I'm saved, I made it, I'm good. Yet that's been the standard for much of the church for a long time. We want to get people to check a box that they pray to prayer, and that's it. You know the sinner's prayer isn't in the Bible? Do you know that? (laughs) There's no formula to become, and there's nothing wrong with that, and of course, praying a prayer of commitment is something we all need to do, but there isn't a formula to become a Christian. It's giving yourself to Christ wholeheartedly. 
Listen, if you want to discover your purpose, you have to be willing to live for more than just a status. You have to actually follow Christ no matter where that takes you, and it'll take you some places you weren't planning on going. I guarantee you. Right? No matter what it looks like, no matter the risk, because you weren't chosen for a status, you were chosen for a purpose. And by the way, it's an extraordinary purpose. It is. It's the only kind of life we should ever want to live as God's chosen people, regardless of status or upbringing or anything else that you may have allowed to stand in between you and that extraordinary purpose he's chosen you for. Paul understood that about himself and about all of us too. Timothy Keller said, Paul sees all kinds of sins in himself and all kinds of accomplishments too, but he refuses to connect them with his identity. You see, because Paul's identity was found in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, first of all, it's because you've been chosen by Christ so that, why? No one may boast. In other words, you cannot claim to be chosen by God because of anything that's been done by you or to you. Rather, it's what's been done for you by him. Which is why none of those other things we're talking about here hold any power over your life anymore. The things that people have said to you, the things that people have done to you, your upbringing, whether it was wonderful or horrible, your status according to this world, whatever it is, none of that holds any sway any longer over those who have been chosen by God. Because your identity in Him supersedes any identity assigned to you by this world. It's already been done. You just have to believe it. It's time to own who you are in Christ. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession why that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now now you are God's people let's pray